Hello, I'm Harry Sewell and welcome to the Seasoning the Reasoning podcast. Reasoning is a term used in Jamaica when people share a conversation and deeply explore a matter of mutual interest. In this series of podcasts, we hope to season the reasoning with curiosity, intellect and in some cases, humour. Enjoy. Hello, welcome to episode two of Seasoning the Reasoning podcast. I'm Harry Sewell. My special guest today is Kiernan Mile. Kiernan and I will be discussing masculinity and mental health. Kiernan is an ex-international and WASPs rugby football club player. He had a long and illustrious career and is now undertaking his PhD at the University of Oxford researching mindfulness-based interventions to improve depression in elite athletes. Kiernan was in the media in 2019, having told his story of how masculinity was an inhibitor in his help seeking for his own mental health. Well, great. Good evening, folks. Uh, we're having a conversation this evening talking about masculinity, male identity, mental health. And along that journey, we're going to have a few other little visits to things like our sport, our athletics, and what keeps us well. And I think when we talk about wellness, um, maybe that's something that we share is this idea that wellness isn't just about our kind of physical well-being, but in quite a holistic way, we think about wellness. But um before we get going, do you want to introduce yourself? I'm here with um, Kieran Mile. Do you want to say a bit about who you are? Of course, yeah. So my name's Kieran Mile. I am an ex-professional rugby player. I'm only just getting used to saying ex because I'm, I'm very recently retired. I'm just about in my first year of retirement. I played for about 15 years for Leeds, Sale Sharks, and most recently Wasps, Rugby Union. In 2013, I played for England. Um, and I've now retired and I'm pursuing a PhD at the University of Oxford in psychiatry. So specifically looking at applications of mindfulness to improve the mental health of elite athletes. Oh, fantastic. So we'll come back to the PhD um, later on. And I kind of smile when you talk about um, being an athlete and the idea of kind of being um, an ex-rugby, international rugby player. Um, because, yeah, that transition brings up a whole lot of kind of questions. But of course... Um, you know, I'm an athlete. Um, it's funny, I, during lockdown, I go and train on the cricket pitch, pitch, which is just outside my garden fence. So I literally just go out the gate and I'm into the cricket pitch. And that's great. And most guys out there are playing cricket or you get people jogging the parameter. Mm. And then I go, being a 400 specialist, I might do a session where I'm trying to replicate um, split fours, which is to run 200 metres, rest for 30 seconds and run 200 meters but this yeah. is that top sprint so i go out there and i go whizzing around and i can see them all stopping and thinking, who is this guy <laughs> and then they like say you're a madman <laughs> yeah and then they say to me are you, are you an athlete i'm like well i'm guessing so and then they say are you international like are you a professional and i think maybe the gray beard might give it away but, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah in lockdown how have you managed to keep up with because i mean clearly as a recently retired athlete, you're not just going to be sitting around. How have you managed to keep up with your fitness regimes? Yeah, the gym's been tough was, uh, the gym's been shut was really tough for me. Not that 
I've ever been a huge fan of the gym, but in my retirement, that was sort of where I, I kind of expended a bit of energy. Uh, I've taken up running, kind of not the type of running that you're talking about. I would always do as an athlete similar stuff to you, sort of interval training, really high intensity. And I've done the exact opposite. I've kind of turned into a member of the general public where I go for like a long and in my case, very slow jog. Um, I'm not very, I'm not very good at it. So I've, do, I've been doing a lot of running, and then I've sort of bought some very well. They were very expensive, but very cheap weights. I'm just about staying in shape, but I think that's uh, I. I, I didn't want to be buying home fitness equipment, but with lockdown being as long as it has, I, it was something that I really needed to keep myself in shape physically and in my brain as well, I think. Yeah, because yeah, I remember when we first spoke um, into lockdown, must be days into it, you were saying you were using resistance bands. Well, mm. of course, you had to kind of graduate from that level. Yeah, I think being a professional rugby player, I'm naturally a very skinny, skinny guy. I was always a skinny kid, and then I had to put on a load of weight. So I've got used to being big, but if I don't lift weights and I don't eat, I just, I just lose weight really quickly. I'm not quite prepared to do that yet, so I had to go out and buy some weights. How did you get into rugby? Um, as a kid, I played all sports. I, I did a bit of everything. I was just... Um, I was just one of those kids who was always looking for a ball, always trying to play a game, walking down the street with my mum, I'd be sidestepping pedestrians and stuff. Um, and my dad played rugby, so I kind of always wanted to be like my dad, as you, you often do when you're a child. And he wouldn't let me play rugby till I was nine, I think. So it was this thing that I was really looking forward to for quite a long time as a kid. And I'm six foot seven, you probably can't tell with me sitting down, but I'm six foot seven. So I was, I was always a, a big child as well. So rugby was a game that came naturally to me just from my size. I was bigger than other kids. So as soon as I went down and kind of got my first taste of it, um, the physical element was something that I liked as well. Kind of, I was, I was a boisterous boy, shall we say. So being allowed to go out and grab people and chuck them on the floor and uh, it just suited me really well and sort of never looked back from there really. Mm -mm. So, rugby, along with boxing, I mean, they're, they're kind of known as the kind of, you know, macho, the kind of men's, real men's sport. And, um, like, what does that conceptualization of maleness and masculinity kind of mean to you, like, you know, like being a real man? Yeah, it, it probably means something different now to what it did to me growing up and in the early stages of my career maybe I'm I'm from Huddersfield we just talked about we both we both live in uh, I don't actually live in Huddersfield anymore but I grew up in Huddersfield um, and it's a, a traditional working class town where men are men and women are women and there's there's not much in between that and you're brought up as a young boy to to be a boy and to grow into a man who is tough and hard on the outside and you don't talk about your feelings and you don't show emotions and any sort of vulnerability that you emit is seen as a weakness so you don't do that and that's how I sort of embodied masculinity a kind of I was I was a very stoic person I just suffered through things and cracked on with things throughout my teens and into my early careers probably until my mid-20s and it was only when I started struggling with my with, with some things that were going on in my life that I kind of had to take a step back and think are these kind of typical traditional masculine traits, things that are useful to me? Are they things that are helpful for, for my life and for my general health? And the conclusion that I came to is that they weren't really. So now when I think about being a man and a masculine man, and I'm still quite a typical masculine man as I've, as I've talked about some of my, my hobbies and interests, um, 
but the things that I try and embody now, the characteristics that I try and embody that, that make me a good man, so to speak, are probably not things that you would typically associate with being male. They're probably just more general characteristics that, that I'm interested in, um, interested in sort of embodying, I suppose. I'd be very interested to hear your, your take on this, Harry, because I've heard you speak about this and you have some very interesting insights yeah, no, it's kind of um, really interesting hearing just your phrase when you said, you know, it's just kind of a normal thing. And this idea that we have to categorize things as like masculine or feminine, um, you know, creates this binary like, idealism, which is unnecessary mm. um, because to kind of be empathic um, and to kind of care about other people's or to kind of be interested in your well-being, um, which is something traditionally women are better at than men are. But that doesn't have to be something that we ascribe to femininity. That should be a universally embraced trait that we're going to look after our physical and mental and emotional well-being. So, yeah, I kind of really noted you saying that. Yeah, it's kind of funny when you talk about, like, being um, kind of growing up and the experiences. And I remember when I was, I don't know, maybe nine, and I was um, playing with some friends uh, at church while I grew up in Jamaica, and I jumped um, off a wall and banged my knee on a column um, and when I landed, I felt as though I'd fractured my knee. I felt as though I'd, I knew that I was going to be crippled. Um, I kind of felt I just would never be able to, to walk again. But all I did was to stand up as much as I could using one leg and just sit on a low wall and just wait until the pain subsided um, and gave nothing away. Mm. that I was in excruciating agony. Um, and I kind of thought, wow, so you know, by the time I was nine, I just knew that even if you kind of felt that you'd fractured your knee, just stunt it and just like pretend it didn't happen because that's yeah. what boys do. Um, mm. And I think that kind of stayed with me. And one of the things that was striking for me is kind of getting into my midlife is that I always thought that I had embraced something different to that traditional model of masculinity. And I realized that actually it's still so embedded in me. Uh, and yeah, so, you know, one of the things I kind of describe in you know, the, the presentation you've heard and what I still kind of try and explore with other people is uh, Michael Kaufman's work about like the first act of violence we commit against ourselves as men. That the first act of violence we commit is against ourselves. Mm. Um, and, you know, that description I gave of me kind of banging my knee and like, you know, killing off that part that would naturally go, ah, oh, this really hurts. Can someone help me walk over to there? You know, somehow I suppressed it. I stifled that aspect of me. So as I grow, there's this part that I was born with that I no longer allowed to thrive. Um, and then the kind of question that you were like exploring is, well, has that served me well? And I think, you know, from my personal experience, I know, you know, there are times when I've kind of shut down um, when I should have reached out. I mean, I've had dark moments in my life when it would have been really helpful for me. You know, I remember, you know, I've had friends come and knock at the door and say, we've not seen your athletics um, club for a couple of weeks. What's going on? You're not answering your phone. Um, and just cut, you know, I cut everyone off. And I think my friends were reaching out, but that kind of hard masculine part of me just would not enable me to to do that because I killed it off, that soft part, that you know, part that could even be compassionate against or towards myself had kind of gone. So yeah, it's a lifelong journey. And it's, I guess that's the thing I have to recognize. 
It is, and I, I I understand that exact scenario so much because I went through the same thing as a as a kid, and then entered a career which essentially promoted that even further. Where as a rugby player, when you're hurt on the pitch, you're literally told, "Don't show pain if you're injured," and it's 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 like it's it's hammered into you every single day. Um, so I naturally grew up with that and then entered a career that kind of enforced that. And then it got to a point where I would, I would never ask for help if I was psychologically struggling because that was, that was just seen as weakness to me or I just saw it as weakness in myself. And it was interesting how you mentioned self-compassion because I think a lot, of, a lot of, again, not just talking about men and women, but I think a lot of men lack a lot of self-compassion. I think a lot of people in general lack self-compassion looking at my career and looking at athletes, I think athletes in particular are essentially void of self-compassion. And part of that can be a motivating factor in that it, it motivates you to, to work harder, to achieve more, to never be happy with yourself. Um, but I think as human beings, it's just not a helpful characteristic to, to hold, hold tight to yourself. Yeah, um, just a quick quote. I remember an international athlete um, colleague of mine, she said, a coach said, the day you look back at a race and you say, I've run my perfect 400 is the day you should retire. Um, and that says that there's never any room for self-congratulations and just kind of you know, basking in it. And I get it. And I still, and it's weird because this is what I talk about. Like, you know, it's a lifelong journey because there's a part of me that still re embraces that. I talk about mm -hmm. that and say, this is a good thing because... I believe it to be true because you know if you do think oh i got that, that spot on then where's the motivation to kind of you know, go out there in the snow and the wind and rain and kind of graft so you need something but yeah does that mitigate against our ability to be compassionate towards ourselves i don't know um so you said about your phd and i want to kind of hear about it but also what kind of brought you um, to that place to kind of you know, be like a rugby player who's now interested in psychiatry that kind of seems like a leap um, for mm. many of us yeah it, it came from personal experiences that I, I briefly alluded to earlier I I had a had a relatively successful career it was it was very successful in the in the um, in the fact that it was 14 seasons long which as a rugby player these days you're doing well if you last that long because it's a pretty brutal game about halfway through my career i um, experienced some some turmoil in my private life which over the course of 14 years kind of everyone is going to experience some sort of negative thing in their life whether it's a bereavement or a breakup or whatever it might be and because of some of the things that, that we spoke about earlier, because of not being able to reach out and ask for help, for, for not having any self-compassion towards myself, for not even understanding that I, as a man, as an as a athlete, I can be in pain and I can be upset. And those are emotions that are perfectly natural. Because I didn't allow myself to feel pain or be upset and I suppressed it, I essentially drove myself into a, to a really deep depression over the course of three or four months, and I started making some pretty bad life choices. I was drinking a lot. Um, my diet was out of the window. Obviously, as an athlete, for 10 years, I've been extremely disciplined, and then suddenly this went, went out of the window. I ended up failing a drugs test. I went out and took cocaine on a night out, which is something that I've never done in the past because you get drugs tested as an athlete. I failed this drugs test, um, and then from that point, was sent to see a psychiatrist. 
and it was there that the psychiatrist diagnosed me with depression and he kind of explained that it was perfectly natural for me to be depressed considering the circumstances and that people do get depressed it's not a big thing but I remember sitting there and thinking does he not know I'm a professional athlete I I can't be depressed and that was my understanding of mental health at the time I thought that because I was a men- because I was a a professional athlete I thought that my mental health was like my physical health like it was peak performance better than everyone else's and it couldn't it couldn't go down but there I was throwing my life away um, without even realizing that so that was kind of a wake-up call for me and from from there on in I spent a year or two learning about mental health improving my own mental health just to recover and be a happier healthier person and then I studied a master's in psychology and neuroscience of mental health. So I started getting a bit of a, 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 an academic understanding and a scientific understanding of what was actually happening to me. And I found it fascinating. And as I kind of learned more about it and I looked at my peers and my teammates, I just saw so much of myself in some of them, not, not all of them, of course, but I'm, I then realized how many athletes, particularly suffering in silence and I thought I want to do something that is going to to help this um plus something that I'm interested in so I applied to Oxford to do a PhD in all honesty didn't think I was going to get in um and then when I got the acceptance letter I had an offer to carry on playing at Wasps and I had the acceptance letter at Oxford but it, it just sort of it was wasn't really a decision for me I just knew that the PhD was the right thing to do and and here I am a year in Oh, wow. I, I didn't know that bit that you could also have carried on on playing. So that, how does that feel? It's like an active choice to say, at this point in my life, I'm choosing this over this sport and this game that I've loved and committed my life to so long. What was that like? It felt good at the time. And it felt, obviously, there's, as an athlete, you're very aware that approaching retirement and transitioning to, into retirement is a, a tough thing to do. And I, at the time, thought this has worked out perfectly. I've got, I've got different options. I can carry on playing if I want to. I can go and do this thing that I, 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 is kind of my passion and is a, is a dream transition out for me. Mm-hmm. And I don't regret any decision for a minute, but we sort of, without going down the transition route of athletes, it, it is really difficult. And this first year has been, has been tremendously challenging for me for a number of reasons. Just because I think you live your life a certain way for so long and as an athlete like I said you're so disciplined and then suddenly I'm not in in a contract anymore and the reason that I've been doing so many things getting up first thing and training eating chicken and broccoli every night all these things that I did I now don't actually have a reason to do anymore and slowly they start start slipping away and then I start questioning well actually who am I who was I all this time so I won't go into too much detail about the transition um, because it's, it's a hugely challenging thing for any athlete. But having, having the option to carry on playing and having the option to go and do something that I, I'm really passionate about is, was fantastically lucky for that. And like I said, I, I don't for a second regret my decision. Oh, that's, yeah, that's amazing. And yeah, it kind of sounds like a really uh, tough time. And you were one of the, the folk who kind of found a way through um, with the right support. And, I mean, do you think that, you know, other athletes are going to be more able to, to kind of find their way through this? You know, do you think that our models of masculinity are changing um, either in this country or globally? And you know, do you think that's for, for the better? 
Yeah, definitely. Over the past maybe five or six years, there have been a lot of campaigns, both in sport and just in, in general as well, about raising our understanding of, of mental, uh, raising our awareness of mental health. And we hear this all the time. There are certain campaigns raising our awareness of things. And, and they've been fantastic. I think the challenge now is to raise our understanding of mental health because we're all aware that everybody has mental health and that sometimes it can be good and sometimes it can be bad and it doesn't matter who you are, whether you're a, a pop star, a rock star, an athlete, a politician, a policeman, you, for a whole number of reasons, may have good or bad mental health and that can change from day to day. I don't think anybody really debates that these days. But I think our, our general understanding of how we can cultivate good health within ourselves as individuals, within our households, within our network of friends and families, and, and even on a, a governmental scale across the, the course of a, a country or a state, I think there's a huge amount of work to be done in those areas. I'm really interested in your study of psychiatry and mental health from a neuroscientific perspective um, and how you interweave that kind of paradigm with some of what you're describing about, you know, the, the models of masculinity or, you know, the, the way in which society operates and how we internalize those, um, which seems to be, if you imagine the spectrum at the other end of the spectrum from kind of looking at psychiatry through a neuroscientific lens. So could you just say a bit more about how you bring those together and particularly with the mindfulness bit? I think there was a light bulb moment for me um, when I started my master's and I started reading um, scientific studies about meditators, long-term meditators and structural changes that occur in, in their brains of long-term meditators compared to people who hadn't meditated before. And to put that into context, when I was diagnosed with depression, as I mentioned, I approached recovering from that how I would approach recovering from an injury, because as I mentioned, I had no, I had no understanding of mental health, no understanding of depression. I knew what depression was, but thought it was something that couldn't affect me. So I looked at all the things that I could possibly do to improve my mental health in the same way that I would if I'd broken my leg. And there's this concept that you might be aware of called marginal gains in sport, and, and it's generally that if anything that you can do will improve your performance or your recovery from an injury, then you'll do it. Even if it's just a tiny 1%, because all those 1% are crew. So you do 10 things over the course of the week, and that makes you 10% better. And that's how I approached my mental health at that stage. And when I basically went home after being diagnosed with depression and Googled things that I could do, I looked at the list and thought, right, simple as that, I'm just going to do them all. And one of those things was meditating. So I started meditating um, maybe five years ago. But when I look back now, I wasn't meditating properly. I was kind of putting on some like whale music or something and after training and maybe like falling asleep for 10 minutes on the sofa and waking up being like, oh, great, I've just meditated. But I hadn't at all because I hadn't been taught and I hadn't um, learned how to do it. And just in the same way that after a match, a conditioner would say to me, right, go get in that ice bath. I had no idea if it would help me but he was telling me to do it so I just went and did it and that's what I was basically doing with meditating I was just sort of trying it because I thought I should then when I read these papers I was like actually this is something that I really need to start taking seriously so I, I started reading more I started learning more um, I did uh, a, an MBCT course I actually when I retired from rugby I flew out to Nepal and spent four days in a Buddhist monastery and, and was taught by Tibetan monks how to meditate which was which was a fantastic experience um, and that's a long-winded way of, of saying that's how 
that's how I see being able to integrate some of these um, topics in a professional sporting environment. Because if you go in and tell a football team or a rugby team to meditate, they're going to laugh at you because it's wishy-washy sort of hippie stuff. If you can actually back that up with hard scientific evidence, which does exist, and you can go in and say, not only will this make your players um, happier and healthier, but there is the potential for it to improve their performance as well. All sports teams care about really is improving their performance. So they're going to bite your hand off. So part of my PhD and probably a big part of my PhD is bringing together this evidence and packaging it in a way that firstly improves the mental health of the athletes because that's my primary goal. But secondly, um, essentially convinces professional sports teams that it's a positive thing for their performance as well. Not in a marketing way, in a this is the evidence and it will improve their performance. Um, and then getting sports teams to basically care about an athlete's mental health as much as they care about their physical health. That's really, really fascinating. And I look forward to seeing it written up and um, knowing you, you probably will have that published as a book in you know, a few years' time. So that's one to, to, to look out for. Um, do you know, I had other questions, but I think you've kind of taken us right to the heart of not even where I wanted to go, but I was kind of hoping we might kind of hit on some really fascinating stuff. Um, I've really, really enjoyed the conversation. And, you know, the, the bit about recognising that, okay, yeah, there might be a science um, that is relevant around the kind of neuroscientific dimension that we spoke about, but actually being able to embrace something broader through your lived experience is almost like a cipher for how we think about masculinity, that we can kind of grow up believing in this particular traditional way of being. But if we're just kind of open, we can kind of embrace other things. It's like we have options here, guys. You know, that's the thing, isn't it? It's not even like, oh, we need to just kind of sweep aside everything we've been taught. It's like, we have options, use them. Um, so, can, yeah. Yeah, and they can be in incredibly powerful and enlightening. And I'm, a, I'm an extremely kind of logical, focused per person. I need to see hard evidence. But when I have opened my mind to meditation a bit and accepted it, I now buy into the spiritual side of it a, a huge amount, which I never would have thought I would. And that's something that I find really helpful. And it isn't something that I would take to a, a premiership rugby team or football team straight away. But then hopefully you're just opening the door for them and allowing them to, to explore it themselves and, and getting something more than, than just the kind of tangible benefits that you can write down in a scientific paper. Mm. And it's funny because I spoke about like, you know, our, our love of sport, you know, kind of, you know, my level of athletics was never at year level, but, you know, you know, I've got national medals at master's level and, you know, kind of in that. But also my, kind of, my form of meditation is often through something called fine rhythms, dancing, which is kind of, you know, it's moving to music, but it's about embodying stuff rather than always trying to find solutions through a cerebral route. Um, and it's kind of funny because I'm alongside someone who's kind of going through terrible grief and, you know, vicariously, I also feel a whole lot of grief, um, both physically in my body and um, emotionally, and at times, um, just in my kind of psychological well-being, the way I kind of process information, I can kind of tell I'm caught in this thing. And there, there was an event on the weekend um, that meant I didn't get to bed until maybe half past five uh, on 
Sunday morning, effectively. Now, I'd never recommend like anybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. Because, um, of course, I, I DJ. So I was kind of doing some uh, kind of DJ well. in an open space um, with social distancing. Um, but the pack up and all of that, and by the time I got home, it was that time of the morning, by the time I went to bed. And I had the possibility of doing a five rhythms dance and meditate, music and meditation at half past 10. And I was thinking, you know, Harry, just let that one slide. Um, but because I know and I knew just how important that has been to keeping me through this real difficult grieving um, and being alongside my friend, I set the alarm at maybe 10 o'clock and was up for half an hour and kind of did my dance and just kind of even moved my body. And it's like that spiritual side. And someone in this week, when I was talking about like my spiritual practice, was saying in my work, it's very noticeable. Um, and I, yeah, it's just kind of really rewarding that something that like I had tentative steps towards this way of you know moving, and then now it's so much part of a practice. And the thing about the word practice, it's a bit like you know in sport, you don't come think, okay, I'm now at this level and it's good, and you just think, oh yeah, I trained a couple of months ago, everything's great. The thing about the practice is that we keep revisiting it, right? So yeah. I guess with your meditation, it's just yeah, it's something you just got to keep. Yeah. When, when, you, when you say you practice and in your, in your work, do you ever put a spiritual side forward in that or do you keep, always keep it very formal? And that's, that's, one of the, that's one of the things I'm, I'm looking at with my PhD, like how do I frame it or how do I pitch it? I, I largely keep it all formal. Mm. I don't bring it into the space apart from um, so to give context um, for our, our listeners here, a lot of what I do is to talk about um, inequality and social justice. And, you know, going back to the fact, like, we're socialised as boys into men, and we were talking about how difficult it is to get rid of that, and we will never, but we can kind of start the journey and keep working at it, that people have prejudices of all natures. And... It isn't just something you can say, oh, I did an unconscious bias course on the 24th of May and now I'm cured. It's like, you know, it's something that we're going to have to keep practicing. And occasionally I invite people to think about it almost like a spiritual practice. That actually we can only get through this stuff is to be honest with ourselves, to say, yes, I do have prejudices. Yeah, sometimes I think I've sorted it and it pops up again. And yes, I'm not going to beat myself up. I'm going to embrace it as part of my growth. And to me, that's kind of part of what our spirituality is, mm-hmm. is to, to, to be content with the struggle, mm-hmm. but remaining in the struggle and to never acquiesce in you know, the, the kind of things that might be comfortable. So through that route, I'll put it up front and say, you know, you can kind of do psychological processes, but actually because it's a journey, it takes a lot more than just tapping into our psychology. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's how it comes in. Love that. So, Ken, thanks so much um, for spending this time. It's been like, for me, a really fascinating um, conversation. And yeah, I hope our paths cross. And, you know, whatever, I follow you on Twitter and I'll be uh, looking for your book when it lands. Um, and send you a copy. <laughs> yeah, no, great. Um, yeah, I hope our paths cross again. I'm sure as you continue your journey and I mine, um, we may well pick up the phone and, yeah, pick up some of these threads again. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure talking, Harry. Take good care. Thanks so much. You too. Bye. Bye 
was great speaking with Kian and then just reinforcing this idea that talking about masculinity and exploring other avenues of being oneself isn't about shutting down options but rather broadening the possibilities broadening the landscape that we can tread in terms of being men um, and of course you know as an ex-rugby player and now an academic it was just really great to hear of his interest in you know self-care and still holding on to some of the ideas that have served him well but the big question of course around masculinity is to what extent is this aspect of my being serving me well and we kind of heard today about some things that previously haven't served so well and things that now are serving him well thanks so much for listening